Hello, you are listening to Radio 1190. That's 1190 AM, 98.9 FM, code K255DA Boulder. And currently, you are listening to News Underground. That is Radio 1190's bi-weekly news program. My name is John. I'll be your host this evening. Now, we do not have anyone in studio this evening, but we do have some interviews we've done recently this week that we've pre-recorded and that we're now going to play for you on air. So let's get to it so this first one here this one is with john cassano and this is about sorry one second this is about a um arctic expedition uh now let's get to it we got a loaded show with uh, two very very interesting interviews um you'll hear the next one in a little bit but let's get started here enjoy you're listening to news underground and you're about to listen to an interview with John Cassano about an Arctic expedition. Let's hear it. I'm John Cassano. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences and um, also a fellow of the Cooperative Institute for Research and Environmental Sciences on campus here. Um, and I'm a polar meteorologist, so I study polar weather and climate. Cool. And um, so Mosaic is uh, the Multidisciplinary Drifting Observatory for the Study of Arctic Climate. Um, you're here to talk about their expedition that mm-hmm. they're launching. Um, the German icebreaker breaker Polar Stern just recently sailed north from Norway, uh, launching what it says is one of the most, uh, or one of the largest polar expeditions in history. Yep. So um, I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about just this, the scope of this expedition. Sure. Um, so it's um, uh, certainly the largest research expedition to ever take place in the Arctic. Um, it's a year-long effort, so uh, the ship sailed, like you said, just about a week ago from northern Norway. Um, it's uh, sailing uh, up to the uh, central Arctic off the coast of Russia, and the ship is going to freeze into the sea ice that's uh, starting to freeze this time of year. Um, and then the ship, the Polar Stern, will drift with the sea ice across the Arctic Ocean for the next year. Um, they'll come back to Europe um, in October next year. So it's about 13 months long. Um, there'll be about 600 people that are involved um, directly on the ship over the course of those 13 months. Um, the budget for this project is about 150 million euros. Um, it costs about $220,000 a day uh, for the logistics to run the ship. So it's a big in terms of people. It's big in terms of the amount of time, a year-long expedition, um, and it's big in terms of cost. So, yeah, so it's a, it's a massive undertaking. Yeah, it is pretty big. Yeah. Uh, I think that's safe to say. Um, so, since this is such a large project, what are people hoping the expedition will achieve as far as climate research? Um, mm-hmm. Like, what discoveries will be made, and what are you hoping that it will achieve? Yep. So, the, the real overarching goal of this project is to Um, gain a better understanding of um, what drives uh, sea ice in the Arctic, so what drives the annual cycle of it, but what also is driving um, the long-term changes that we've been seeing over the last several decades with sea ice decreasing. Um, And so to do that, uh, we have scientists from sort of all of the climate disciplines, so there are atmospheric scientists like myself, Um, There are uh, cryospheric scientists studying the snow and the sea ice. There are oceanographers studying the Arctic Ocean. Um, And then there are actually um, biologists that that are looking at the biology. Um, And all of those parts of the climate system interact to sort of shape how the Arctic climate is, uh, how it behaves, and how it's it's going to change over time. Um, And so really one of the things that we're hoping to achieve is um, to make direct measurements of all of these components, how they interact, Um, the exchanges that take place between those different parts of the climate system and to do it over a full annual cycle. Um, The Arctic is obviously a hard place to work. Most of the research that gets done there is done in the summer or maybe in the fall or the spring, but very little is done um, over the winter. And so that's one of um, the unique things that we're hoping to get out of uh, the Mosaic expedition is to be making this year-long set of measurements to really track all of those exchanges and see how they're changing through a full annual cycle. And this is obviously a very uh, cool thing to be a part of. Oh, yeah. So um, I was wondering, too, just how you went about becoming involved in in this expedition. Yep. Um, So I actually was... um, uh, So a big expedition like this takes 
um, years and years to plan. So uh, Mosaic's been in planning by the scientific community for um, more than a decade. Um, I was actually um, one of the members of the, the scientific committee that proposed Mosaic uh, more than a decade ago. Uh, so I've been involved from the beginning, um, saying, you know, this is uh, the type of science that we need to be doing to really understand uh, how the climate, the Arctic climate, behaves, uh, allow us to improve our representation of the Arctic in our climate model so that we can make um, useful projections about what we think is going to happen as we move into the future. Um, so, uh, you know, in terms of, of how something like this happens, it's a group of scientists get together, they, you know, identify what the, the research questions are, they think about what are the logistics, what are the agencies that would be willing to fund something like this, um, you know, it was an international group that, that came up with the idea for Mosaic. And so uh, scientists from that group approached their national funding agencies in the US. It was the National Science Foundation. Uh, the Germans approached their research uh, ministry. Uh, you know, and it just sort of went from there. You know, we needed to make a case to the funding agencies why this was an important problem, um, you know, how, how we were gonna do it, what the budget would be. Um, and so it's been a lot of, um, advocating to to get the support to, to pull this off yeah and then kind of a, just a follow-up to that or more so to the to the importance of the project mm -hmm. um, there's obviously been a lot of discussion in sort of the public sphere about climate change mm -hmm. um, the Democrats just had like a seven-hour town hall on climate change on yes. CNN um, it's becoming much more uh, I think mainstream mm -hmm. so do you think that this expedition and the answers that you'll get from it are going to help sort of aid in some clarity to questions that people might have just about climate change in general and the, the direness of it. So, um, you know, I think in the U.S. there's really um, that need to um, help people see, like you said, the direness of climate change. Um, you know, in Europe, a, a lot of the public and politicians already understand that climate is changing, that it's a serious problem. And so I think for the European groups that are involved, their interest is more in improving our ability to understand what we have coming at us, you know, over the next century so that they can prepare adequately, you know, in terms of changes in climate impacts on mid-latitude weather, but also changes in sea ice in the Arctic that have implications for changes in shipping, resource, resource exploitation. Um, you know, changes to the biology of the oceans. So for them, it's not so much convincing people that this is a dire problem, but understanding what's coming at us so that we can adequately prepare to adapt to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then um, the leg of the mosaic trick that, that you're going to be on, mm -hmm. when is it? And um, what kind of things are you going to be doing within the atmospheric research focus yep um, so uh, I'll leave the US uh, about mid-January next year um, and I'll and then um, I'll fly to Norway I'll board a Russian icebreaker there and it'll take about three weeks for that icebreaker to reach the German ship that's being frozen in right now um, and then I'll spend two months on the German ship and then it'll be um, probably about a week to get back um, so I'll, I'll be away for about three months for this um, I'll uh, arrive at the, the German icebreaker during the polar night, so it'll be dark all the time. Um, when I leave, it'll be light all the time, um, which is, I, I've done uh, several other polar uh, field projects before, and that's my favorite time of year to be there to see that transition from night to winter. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. Um, in terms of the science that uh, we'll be doing, um, we'll be flying unmanned aircraft drones to make measurements of the atmosphere, um, and specifically to look at how the atmosphere is exchanging energy and moisture and momentum uh, between itself and the underlying surface, whether that's snow-covered sea ice or bare sea ice, um, or occasionally the sea ice will crack under the influence of storms, um, and then it exposes the ocean. So uh, all those different surfaces exchange energy and moisture um, at very different rates, and so we wanna understand um, exactly how that's happening, what that looks like, um, so that we can make projections moving into the future. Yeah, and you mentioned the um, the odd sort of uh, sunrise sunset yes. schedule uh -huh. um, over there. There are also other things that Sea Boulder News mentioned, 
uh, like in winter temperatures can pl plummet to minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit, mm -hmm. uh, which is very cold. Yes. Um, scientists working on the ice will need polar bear guards, yep. um, uh, just et cetera, et cetera. Yes. Um, so are you, for those conditions, are you, are you nervous? Um, and also just about the trip in general, are you mm -hmm. nervous? Are you excited? Yes, both. Um, you know, so I've I've spent a lot of time doing polar field work before, um, m mainly in the Antarctic, not in the Arctic. Um, so the cold, I'm not really concerned about. It's mostly just unpleasant to work in those temperatures. And I mean, obviously, it's dangerous. Um, you know, if you're not careful. Um, so the cold, I'm not concerned. I've seen temperatures colder than what we'll see in the Arctic. Um, the polar bears scare me a little bit. Um, actually, earlier this summer, I, I went and uh, took, uh, did polar bear safety training, um, learned how to safely handle a rifle for polar bear protection. So um, there'll always be polar bear guards um, stationed sort of watching the scientists out on the ice um, to let us know if polar bears are approaching. Um, but scientists can also sort of work outside of that area and then we need to carry our own protection. So um, uh, myself and the people on my team have, have gone through that training. Um, I'm a little bit scared of polar bears, but um, I think the leg that we're on, we're going to be so close to the North Pole, so far away from land or shallow water um, that I'd be surprised if we see any polar bears. Um, but it's possible, and it'll be dark for part of that time, which makes it hard to see what's out there. Um, so that does make me a little bit nervous. Um, you know, I'm, I'm excited because I've never done a trip like this. I've been to the Antarctic a lot. Um, I've never spent any time in the Central Arctic. Um, I've never spent uh, such an extended period of time on a, a ship. Um, you know, I've never spent any time, real time, on sea ice and living on sea ice. So I'm looking forward to seeing that, seeing what that environment's like. Um, I said before that I really love that transition from polar night to polar winter, so I'm excited to see that. Um, I'm a meteorologist, so I love the weather, so I am looking forward to the cold, to the stormy weather, um, even though it's hard to, to work in. I, I love seeing those types of conditions. Um, you know, but the, the thing that um, I'm most worried about or that makes me most concerned is just the difficulty of being away from home for three months. Um, you know, so uh, I'm married, I have a 10-year-old daughter. You know, neither my wife or my daughter are terribly excited about me being away for that long, and I'm not either. Um, you know, I worry about things like if one of them gets sick or hurt while I'm away, there's no way for me to come home. And so that's a very hard thing, if I let myself think about it, to take the step to actually go away and do that. Um, and I've faced that before with other polar trips. Um, so that's that's really hard. Um, I won't have good um, communications with them. We won't have um, very reliable internet or phone access. So um, it'll be hard to stay in touch and that's difficult as well. So those are things that I'm not looking forward to, just part of the job, I guess. Yeah, it's for the greater good, at least. Yes. So that's what you can tell yourself. Yes. But, um, you know, and my daughter is excited. You know, she, she's excited about the fact that I'm doing this cool thing, you know, that a lot of parents don't do. And um, I have arranged where um, I'll call with a satellite phone to her school and talk to her class about the expedition, um, which is always fun to talk to kids and let them know what you're doing and they get excited you know they're talking to someone that's at the North Pole and it's you know 40 below and there's a blizzard going on and you've seen polar bears so those are all fun things I like getting kids excited about science about the, the world that we live in so that there are, there are definitely lots of great things about the trip too yeah and it's good I think for kids to to know about climate and the environment especially mm -hmm. sort of in our current moment yes so that's very cool that you get to do that yes and um, yeah, is there anything else that you would like to add about the expedi expedition, about your research, um, where people can find more information, et cetera? Yep. Um, so, um, you know, we've talked a little bit about, you know, the, the part of the project that I'm on, um, and there are lots of other scientists from Boulder that are involved in the project, um, from CU. Um, you know, our team will be on three of the six legs of the expedition, so we'll, we'll have people up there for half of a year. Um, we're bringing several graduate students with us, so that's really a great experience for young scientists to sort of work in the field and, and get that experience doing polar field work. Um, and I always enjoy bringing students with me on trips like this. Um, you know, and in terms of people following the expedition, um, uh, 
uh, mosaicexpedition.org is um, a website where you can find lots of information and on there you can um, uh, follow the expedition until there are daily updates that show you where the ship is, what the weather conditions are, um, talk about what's been going on. Um, so that's kind of fun to, to follow. Cool. Okay. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you very much. So thank you for tuning in to News Underground. That was John Cassano being interviewed by Anna Haynes, one of our correspondents on his um, recent Arctic expeditions that he will be going on soon. And up now we have um, Stephanie Kane, a writer who has recently written a new novel, a crime thriller, that takes place locally in the Denver Art Museum. Um, it follows a um, one of the museum's experts as she works to uncover a murder mystery. Let's hear it right here on Radio 1190. Hello, so I'm here today with Stephanie Kane, author of A Perfect Eye, a new crime novel set at the Denver Art Museum. Stephanie, thank you for phoning in. Thanks for having me, John. All right, so I guess the first question I really have to ask about the book is why did you choose to set it at the Denver Art Museum? Well, I, it's, it's a crime novel set in the art world, and um, my previous crime books all starred a, a dyslexic criminal defense lawyer who was a better lawyer because she had difficulties reading and writing, so I wanted a new heroine, and I decided to um, set her in the art world. Oh, very and the Denver Art Museum is, is a favorite haunt of mine, so I decided to make my heroine, Lily, a paintings conservator. Oh, very nice. And um, as the novel uh, description talks, she has kind of a keen eye for paintings like that? Yes, she was actually raised to be hyper-observant by her father. Interesting, interesting. Uh, so, could you tell us a little more about uh, the plot of the book? About, excuse me? Could you tell us a little more about the plot of the book? Oh, yes. Um, well, Lily, as I said, is a painting conservator at the Denver Art Museum. And uh, there is, of course, a nice, gruesome slaying there. And her perfect eye, her hyper-observant eye, tells her um, that, the, that, the, that the way that the murder occurs uh, may be related to an Impressionist painting at the museum. Interesting. Her, her perfect eye sort of sees a connection between this, this particular Impressionist masterpiece and uh, the crime scene. Interesting. So the plot, you know, pits her against um, this killer. All right, interesting. Um, is the is it based off uh, actual painting, or is this uh, one that's in the world of the book? Well, the painting, the artist in the um, who painted the painting is a real impressionist artist named Gustav Kaibot, and the painting itself is a landscape that is part or purports to be part of a series of landscapes that Kaibot actually painted. And the Denver Art Museum has one of these landscapes, which is one of the reasons why I chose it for the story. Um, but to, to jump ahead a little in the plot, her, you know, her so-called perfect eye um, tells her that the killer may be a real artist who is a failed artist who has kind of a grudge against the art world for refusing to recognize his genius. So she starts down the path of thinking that he may, that the, the painting that seems to be the um, template or the model for the killing may actually have been forged by this killer. So yes, the painting, no, the painting is not a real painting, but yes, it is based on a series of real landscapes that Impressionist artist Gustav Kaibot actually painted. Very, very nice. Do you feel like some of his um, work kind of inspired the novel in part? Inspires the killer, you mean? Kind of inspires 
more of like the plot. Uh, kind of like, did the paintings inspire you when you were writing the book? Yes, yes. Um, I got, in fact, I did just a tremendous amount of work uh, researching Kaibot and his life and his style. And um, one of the reasons I picked him, as I mentioned, is because the Denver Art Museum actually has a landscape by him. So I was able to go and look and study that. And I was also looking for a real artist as an inspiration for my plot. And I, I picked an impressionist because I liked his work and I, I found his personal story compelling. Um, he was a sort of a rich kid whose father wanted him to be a lawyer and he chose to be an artist instead. And, you know, so he bucked all sorts of conventions and familial disapproval. Um, he was also, um, another thing I liked about him was the fact that he was more obscure than Degas or Renoir or some of the other better known impressionists. Um, and instead of, and, and he, at, in his time, he was really, really dissed by the art world and the connoisseurs of the time. And yet he persisted. He was much more experimental than the other Impressionists, and he paid a heavy price for it. So when I started researching his personal story, I kind of liked him more and more. And I, it also seemed to me that he would be a perfect artist for a, an art forger to, to forge, partly because he was so obscure. And you know, he didn't leave a lot of paintings behind that, that, you know, experts could compare this particular forge painting to. Mm. So Kaibot became, you know, kind of an inspiration of mine. Interesting. Do you feel like there, um, with that uh, painter, do you feel like he also kind of inspired the antagonist in your story? Yes, absolutely. Because I think there's a, one thing as I, as I started getting into plotting this, um, there was, I, it seemed to me there was like a synergy between the forger and Kaibot because I don't know how much you know about art forgers, but I ended up doing a ton of research on them. And then there's, there's sort of a profile of, of them. They tend to be middle-aged men who have been, who are artists themselves, but they've been rejected by the art world. You know, they've been dissed and they're angry and some of them obviously do it for money but but the, the biggest motivation seems to be that they want to prove a point they want to prove that the experts were wrong in refusing to recognize their own genius so you know that's kind of the motivation and i thought that there was sort of an interesting synergy with kaibot who was also rejected by the experts of his time but of course, Kaibot went in a completely different direction. You know, he didn't try to forge better known impressionists. In fact, he was, he was a good friend of Monet and Renoir and Degas. And uh, he was, instead of being resentful and jealous of them, he actually supported them. So he used his family money to buy their paintings. He amassed a, a wonderful collection of impressionist art which he donated to the French state. And if you go to Paris, you will see Kaibot's collection of his friend's work in the Musée d'Orsay. So, you know, he went in a completely different direction than the forger did, but I, I thought that there was, you know, an interesting kind of similarity between the two of them in terms of how their work was received by the art world. Okay, and that's where the antagonist came from, that whole kind of mindset. Yes. And, you know, as a, as a crime writer, I have found that it's really, really important, for me at least, to identify at least as much with the bad guy as with the hero or the heroine. Because the, the bad guy fuels the plot. So unless I can identify with him in some kind of a human way, it's really hard for me to get a plot going that I get excited about. And so when I started looking into forgers, I, 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 in a very, very peculiar way, 
um, I, I could sort of identify with this guy. And, and one way I could identify was I was a lawyer before I was uh, a crime writer. In fact, I am a CU alum of a law school and undergraduate. Um, but in my legal career, I represented a con man who was absolutely the worst client I ever had um, because he, you know, with, I don't know if you've ever had the misfortune of meeting a con man, but, you know, they get their gratification in, in taking advantage of, of a mark. And uh, a lawyer can become a prime mark for a con man because you want to believe in your client. And in fact, you can't, you can't really represent someone well unless you have a certain belief, you know, in, in, in them in some way. So I became kind of a victim of this, um, this con man client, and uh, he was just the worst client I ever had. I couldn't wait till, you know, the case was over and I didn't have to have anything to do with him anymore. And a forger is really nothing more than a glorified con man. Um, and they may think that they're creating art, but they're not. You know, they're just creating an imitation of somebody else's inspiration. Okay. So that con man so, case also kind of played into the antagonist? Yes, absolutely. So, in a way, you know, I, the, the two characters that I got into really the most in the story were Kaibot and um, the Forger, even more so than my heroine, who, of course, I love, but, you know, the real engine of a plot is sort of the, the malevolence of this Forger, and really the, the innocence of poor Gustav, you know, Kaibot, who's been dead for more than a hundred years but was exploited by this guy interesting do you um if you don't mind me asking uh what's kind of been your process with creating your characters including your uh, heroine well i look for for some reason i'm drawn to heroines who have sort of uniquely strange or different ways of viewing the world and um with this heroine um I, actually, she was inspired by a real person. I was trying to come up with a new heroine because I'd sort of tapped out on my dyslexic criminal defense lawyer heroine, and I was, I was sick of writing about lawyers, um, and I wanted to, uh, to go into a, a new kind of heroine who had a new sort of profession or a new kind of calling. And so I was, I was sort of trying to come up with somebody who would be interesting, and I read an article about a woman named Amy Herman, who is a real person. She's an art historian, and uh, she trains people in, um, you know, to improve their diagnostic and investigatory skills by studying paintings in museums. She trains med students, FBI agents, lawyers, and cops in the art of perception. And she wrote a book called Visual Intelligence, which really describes the process of how you hone your, your observational skills. Interesting. So I got, you know, I read her book and read up on her, and, and, and that became kind of the backstory for my heroine. Um, and I thought that, you know, if somebody like Amy Herman can train an adult to be hyper-observant, you know, why not train a kid? And then you have to ask yourself, why would a parent actually do that? You know, to, to protect his child or maybe to distract her from something he doesn't want her to see. So, um, and it also occurred to me that having a so-called perfect eye is also an Achilles heel because it can blind you to the meaning of what's in front of you. You know, you kind of miss the forest for the trees. So it has its own built-in weakness, which, you know, I think is central to any good character. And in fact, going back to my forger for a second, you know, actually his hubris um, 
is sort of the, the seeds of the seed of his downfall. So if you can if you can shape a character whose strength is also their weakness, I think you got something really cooking. Interesting, interesting. So do you feel like that kind of weakness is also going to play into um, Lily's kind of story? Absolutely. Because, you know, she... It's not that she has a great deal of, you know, self-regard because she has a perfect eye, but it, it's kind of her default mechanism, you know, to, to be that, that super keenly observant. And, you know, it just doesn't occur to her that, you know, maybe when she's looking so deeply into details, maybe she's missing the bigger picture. And that, of course, becomes her character arc. Because there was a reason her father trained her to be hyper-observant. And it, it wasn't just to teach her a nice little skill she could carry with her into adulthood. So uh, that becomes her character arc. Interesting. Speaking of character arcs, um, do you feel like there are any certain challenges or um, strategies that are inherent with writing character arcs? Um, well, I think, I personally think it's important for a character to have an arc. Because if they don't change over the course of the story, why read the story, you know? I mean, the personal psychological dimension is very important for me as a writer because it's what interests me in people. And it's... Um, you know, it's what keeps me wanting to write the story. So I have to come up with the arc before I can, you know, really think about a story. And then, of course, the arc changes as I'm writing it because writing is a very dynamic, creative process. So, you know, you kind of want to be surprised. You want to surprise yourself as you're writing it because that means the story is really alive. So I think the arc is really integral to that. Interesting, interesting. Um, speaking of kind of like creating, um, kind of like the world of the book, uh, what do you feel like your creative process is like? Well, I am very, shall we say, front end loaded, which means I do just a ton of research and thinking and troubleshooting of a concept before I start to write it. And that can that's a pretty prolonged process because I'm looking at things like, well, what would the character arc be, you know? And the bad guy has to have a character arc too. And how do they intersect? And, you know, what kind of setting would bring sort of the worst out in both of them? And, you know, and then you have to put it in the context of a crime and you know so so I do an awful lot of front end work before I write you know a word of a manuscript and then I I also outline scenes because uh, each scene is a dramatic microcosm of the larger story so each scene and by scene I'm you know a chapter can be a scene um, so if you want to think of it as chapters, that might be, you know, easier. But, but each chapter has to have its own arc, you know? Interesting. And then together, they, you know, the, the story has, a, has an arc. But I, I just put an awful lot of front-end work into that stuff. And, and sometimes, you know, I, I mean, I have one book that I wrote, and I was under contract to a publisher for it and under a deadline, and... I thought it was a really good story. It was one of my dyslexic lawyer stories. And, and I just, you know, I wrote the entire thing. And then I, uh, I happened to be in a courtroom watching a case while I was taking a little break and patting myself on my back because the manuscript was completed. And I saw something in the courtroom, something in real life, that was much more powerful than what I had written in that book. And I threw the entire, it was the only book that I had 100% completed, and I just threw the entire thing out and started from scratch because my premise was just, you know, it just wasn't as real and powerful as, as what I had actually observed. If you don't mind so, me, 
if you don't mind me asking, what what was it that you had observed? Okay, the story was called Extreme Indifference, Ooh. and it is about the effect of people's indifference to each other, the casual indifference that we treat strangers and even friends with all the time without even thinking about it and what effect that could have you know on the people around you when you're not even aware of it um it is also a um a degree of murder under colorado law where if you behave with such in extreme indifference to the welfare of your victim that the victim dies it's, it's just as if you intended them to die. So it's a category of murder under Colorado law. But I was more interested in, you know, just the effects of indifference. And what happened is I sat in this courtroom and I saw a monumental <laughs> expression of indifference of a lawyer to her client. Um, basically the lawyer sold the client out in a settlement and the client did not realize had agreed to it and I'm sure was technically informed of everything but did not realize that it meant that he would have to leave the kind of work that he was in and not do it again for five years it was a non-compete kind of situation and uh the lawyer basically sold him out. And uh, I was sitting in the courtroom and I happened to be sitting right behind the table where this lawyer and client sat. And the judge um, had to accept the settlement because it was presented to him and, you know, the parties all agreed and everything. Mm -hmm. And they all, they left, the judge left the courtroom and I was sitting there, and the lawyer and the client turned to the lawyer and said to her, so does this mean I can go back to work tomorrow? And of course it meant he couldn't go back to work for five years. And uh, she, you know, I saw his face when she explained to him, evidently for the first time, that no, it meant he would have to earn his living some other way. And, you know, just the complete, the, the world, you know, dropped out of him. I mean, he, he was just, he was, he was so stunned and so betrayed that it just, it woke me up. You know, the, the, I can't even remember what plot I had had before, but, but what I really witnessed was the extreme indifference of this lawyer to to what the settlement meant in real terms to her client. And I thought, you know, this is real, and what I wrote was not. So I just, you know, I threw it out. Interesting. And the, the story actually became about a judge's indifference to the effect of his rulings on the people in front of him in court. Interesting. Um, and, you know, I just, it, it just really taught me a lesson. That whole writing of that book taught me a real lesson that I think, at least for me, I can't speak for other authors, and I'm not, this is no judgment on anybody else, but for me, I, I really feel like I have to write something that expresses something that's, that's real and true and that I care about. You know, not to be didactic or anything, because that kills a book, especially genre fiction like a crime book. But it's got to come from a, a place that's real inside of me. And once I recognize that what I'm writing isn't real, it's just not good enough. I don't want to put it out there. If you so don't, if you I don't. learned a big lesson from that book. Interesting. If you don't mind me asking... And it actually went on to win a Colorado Book Award and a Colorado Authors League Award. Um, and I think it was just a much better book. Very interesting. Interesting. Very nice. Um, congratulations, too. Um, I was going to ask, how did the uh, case play into the, um, the plot of the book? I'm uh, kind of curious about this uh, extreme indifferences. 
Um, the case itself did not. The case was a, was a non-compete clause. What happened was there was a salesman, I can't even remember what industry he was in, but he was a Mormon and he had developed this enormous list of customers through his contacts, through his family and his friends and his church. And he went to work for a certain company as a salesman. And uh, he uh, then he left and he went to another company. And his first company sued him and his new employer for what they said was stealing customers. But they were really customers who were personal to this guy. They were his personal contacts. And he went when he went and worked from, for this other company, he just kept dealing with the people, the customers he had known his whole life. So he was, he was pretty blameless. The problem was that uh, his lawyer represented both him and his, the new company that he went to work for. So when the new company and the salesman were sued by the old company, um, that lawyer basically sold him out by entering into a settlement agreement which said that he could not contact any of the people on his personal customer list for five years. And so she sold him out to get a settlement for his new employer, you know, to get the new employer off the hook. And he was the one who paid the price. So that case did not, I didn't use that case in my book, but just that whole dynamic of, you know, as a lawyer, you know, you're trained to put your client first, and and it was just, there was just something so shocking about the way it turned out, and, and frankly, I, I would not have really understood what the effect on this guy was if I hadn't just happened to be sitting in the row behind them and witnessed this this short little conversation between him and his lawyer, you know, after the judge left the bench and the courtroom was clearing out and, you know, he just turned to her very innocently and said, you know, so does this mean I can go back to work tomorrow? And she had to tell him it means you can't contact any of these people who have been, you know, your personal contacts who you've built through a lifetime. And, you know, he just, it, it just gutted him. So, so to answer your question, it, it, the case itself did not, I didn't use that in my story, but, but the real emotion, what, what was missing from my, from my earlier version of the story was the real emotion and the real impact and the real rage that indifference can cause, being treated with indifference can cause. And that's what was missing from my story, which was, you know, the real emotional effect of that. So what is the uh, plot of Extreme Indifference? Because um, now, uh, now I'm feeling kind of curious about, because this is kind of an interesting story here, so I'm kind of curious to hear about how you took that and turned it into the story for your novel. Okay, you're really testing me here because I have a rule that I never look at a book once it's been published. So, but I think I remember this plot. This, this what happened is, and I don't want to spoil the story of who the killer is. Oh, I, no, that's but, understandable. But it's something that happens in a courtroom. A, a judge, and actually, it's set in Boulder. Um, it's, there's there's a lawsuit over. I think it is a cosmetics brush that one person invented. You know, this woman develops this wonderful new cosmetics brush and she basically gets screwed out of the the profits from it by a business arrangement that she that she enters. And the judge just blithely, you know, rules in favor of the you know, the big company that, that bought the rights with her not understanding what it was she was giving up. Okay. So um, what happens in the story is the judge's indifference to the, 
the point or the you know the, the parties in front of of him, at least one of the parties, this woman, results in um, a revenge plot. Interesting. If you don't mind me asking, why do you have the rule of not looking at a book once it's published? Because I can't change it. Ah. So you know, as my as I write, my my writing style evolves. I like to think it gets better. Maybe sometimes it gets worse. Um, but once it's it's between covers, it, it just doesn't belong to me anymore. And I take that to such an extreme that when I give um, presentations at bookstores and stuff like that, I never do a reading. I just I just can't bear to to read the words because. I know that if I was doing it again, I'd probably change them a little, you know, and so I just, I, I feel like once a book of mine is between covers, it, it really doesn't belong to me anymore. It belongs to whoever reads it, and that reader is not going to be me. <laughs> Interesting. Do you feel like there's any kind of a certain challenge that writing crime novels prevent, uh, presents? Well, uh, yeah, a couple for me, for sure. First of all, I, I don't really like to write gory stuff. I don't, I don't get off on it. I'm, I'm much more into the psychological motivations. And a crime story, you know, needs a little bit of, you know, it needs a murder. I don't write about heists or capers or, you know, thefts or anything like that because I just can't get into the psychology of, you know, wanting to have more money. I mean, I can get into a revenge psychology or, you know, prove the critics wrong like the forger wants to do, but I, can, I don't get into the, the theft stuff. So for me, you know, a crime book has to, the crime books I write have to involve a murder. And that means being at least a little graphic, hopefully not, you know, pruriently so. Um, so there's that. And another challenge is the action scenes. Most of these stories, at least the ones I write, require some kind of physical confrontation, or at least the threat of confrontation, between the hero or heroine and the bad guy. And those action sequences are just, they're, they're difficult for me to do. And in fact, I remember in Blind Spot, which was my first Jackie Flowers, you know, the criminal defense lawyer, book um i have i should tell you i'm married to a judge so the case that i witnessed um that extreme indifference you know ended up being about was actually in the courtroom because i was watching him try the case and he was not certainly not indifferent to what was going on you know the fact that the party settled it took it out of his hands um but anyway, being married to a judge, I have met through him certain people who have committed crimes and done their time. And uh, we, in our circle of friends, include some of those people are included, and some are very dear friends. And one friend of my husband's was a, he, he died a couple of years ago, but he was a career um, burglar and arsonist and he helped me choreograph uh, a couple of scenes in a book in my book blind spot and and one thing that happens at the very end is um the the bad guy in blind spot attacks the uh the heroine the criminal defense lawyer with a with a taser and to um, understand what that was like um, this guy could not have a taser because you know he's a convicted felon etc cetera, etc cetera. but I went to um, the Tanner gun show I looked at taser guns um, had somebody I, did, I was not tased but I had people described to me how to use it, you know, and then back at our house, this old friend of my husband's came at me with, you know, something that, that was kind of like a taser gun, and we choreographed what the reaction would be. 
This guy also helped me with an arson scene, since he had been at the scene of many fires which he had caused. And he just he he just totally brought it alive for me in the way he described it and kind of reenacted certain things. So, you know, in that case I had a lot of help. Um, but when I'm left to my own devices it's kinda of hard for me to you know, to manufacture the action in an, in in the action scenes that I think my novels need, you know, at least a few of. What are some of your favorite scenes to write? Um, well, you know, one reason I made the heroine in this new novel an art conservator is because I wanted her to have hands-on relationship with paintings. Conservators clean and restore paintings. So they actually get, they, they, they have a craft that enables them to physically, that requires them to physically touch canvases in a way that nobody but the artist himself, who may be dead for hundreds of years, was ever able to do. So the, I, I, one of my weaknesses, I think, is writing heroines who live too much in their heads. That's one reason I wanted to get away from my, from my criminal defense lawyer because, you know, lawyers, lawyers don't do anything physical. You know, we we think a lot and we make arguments and stuff like that. But I wanted to have for this new heroine, I wanted to have her be someone who actually physically had a skill and physically did something. So I that was. Writing her was a really enjoyable because it sort of freed me from my own, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin kind of way of looking at the world. And it, it forced me to, to look at the world in a way that somebody who actually has a physical skill might approach the world. So favorite, you know, the scenes that come easiest to me are the ones where somebody's just thinking in their own head, because that's mostly what I do myself, um, and what most lawyers do. But I really, I really learned and expanded by creating um, a heroine who was, who didn't do that, who actually did something real in the world, instead of just making arguments. So kind of like more, kind of like Kind of like grounded in reality, kind of? Yeah, yeah, in a very physical reality. I mean, when you go to a museum, you've got to stand a foot or two back from the paintings, which is appropriate, you know. So when I was, like, trying to understand how my um, heroine might feel about touching paintings, I certainly couldn't do it, you know, with a painting in a museum. Um, And my husband and I collect some paintings, and so I started going around and touching the paintings that we have in our house, and just feeling, you know, the buildup of the impasto, the, you know, the paint in, in uh, a certain painting, really, it, it, I actually created a scene from that, where she's recognizing the artist from his touch to the canvas, and the touch to the canvas is how he uses his brush and his palette knife to lay um, paint on the canvas, and it, it, there's a physical experience to that. And I think art conservators have that kind of physical experience because they're touching a canvas that only the artist touched. Interesting. And they're in some way trying to reconstruct what the artist intended through their own touch. So that was kind of a thrilling um, aspect of this character for me. Interesting. Um, so, I have to ask, so for anyone who might be listening, who might be trying to write themselves as an author, what kind of advice would you have to give? Well, uh, one piece of advice, I, I'll tell you what I think is the worst advice that, that writers get, and that is to do this thing that, that, you know, it's become sort of a mantra to write with the reader in mind, you know? 
Well, every writer wants to be read, which means being entertaining at some level. But if you're also writing to explore an idea or something personal, if you're writing for a hypothetical reader, it's really easy to lose what drove you to write. You know, like, for instance, to go back to extreme indifference for a second, I it was under a contract to Scribner, which is, you know, a major traditional publisher. Would Scribner have recognized the difference between the manuscript that I threw out and the one that I ultimately delivered? Probably not, you know? Um, but you have to write for yourself. You have to write something that is true for yourself because, frankly, I think that's as good as it gets. And I think that, that the best advice that you could give to an aspiring writer or a beginning writer is that you should keep asking yourself why you want to write. And you have to keep doing that throughout your career because the answer may change. So, you know, I, it starts with the impulse in you. And then what you have to do is you've got to learn the craft so that when you express the impulse, you know, you're doing it in the most effective and polished way. But you can't, you can't get too far away from, from the impulse itself because, you know, the publishing world, it's, what do they want to, what do mainstream publishers want to do? They want to make money by selling a ton of books. And that's fine, you know. But if that's the reason you write, you know, then you're going to have to write to some hypothetical market that may or may not like what you're writing about and it just doesn't make sense to me to let the market drive what you write so my best advice is keep asking figure out why you want to write just ask yourself that you know is it to express a certain idea is it to make money you know whatever it is keep asking yourself that and you know stay true to that because frankly for me at least that has always been the biggest reward you know not the way the book is received in the market or whether it wins a prize but whether it expresses something that I truly care about or cared about at the time I wrote it so you know I think that's the best advice I can give as far as learning the craft you know there are tons of resources out there and that depends on how you best learn. There's some people who are extroverts and they like the group experience. That's fine, you know? I'm an introvert and basically self-taught. And that's kind of a tougher road because you can run down an awful lot of blind alleys. But whatever your personality is or whatever your learning style is, there are tons of resources out there to, um, you know, to start learning the craft and to keep improving it. And, you know, that's the other piece of advice I would always look to improve, you know. Look to improve your own writing. Look to improve, you know, your your ability to empathize with, with your characters by empathizing with real people in, in real life. You know, you, there's no shortage of ways to improve and you should always be be open to those because for me you know when you when stuff gets to be routine when I'm not pushing myself to, to be better in some way I just lose interest you know I like the learning curve so I guess the real advice is figure out why you want to write and figure out what your own style is your own learning style and then you know, get better and better at that. But at the same time, remain open, certainly open to criticism and feedback. And, you know, eventually you'll get better. Thank you for that advice. Um, is there anything else you would want our listeners to know? Um, well, I have a website. It's writercane.com. That's Kane with a K. So writer, K-A-N-E. On it, I have a blog about a cold case that I was personally involved in, and the blog is about the intersection of storytelling techniques 
and this cold murder case that I had some involvement in and that just so happens to have taken place in Boulder, Colorado while I was a student at CU. So your listeners might be interested in that. They can also find me on Facebook. I have an author page. Definitely sounds great. Listeners, remember to check out Stephanie Kane's website at writerkane.com. Stephanie, thank you so much for coming on, and thank you so much for telling us about your new novel, Perfect Eye. Well, thank you very much for having me and for asking me such great questions. We appreciate you coming on. It's great to hear about these kinds of um, stories, especially when they're close to our home, you know? Yep. It's lovely to hear from you and it's definitely and our listeners I think it would be definitely great to check out A Perfect Eye great and anybody can contact me through my website I love talking about writing craft and it's not any bother at all so if any aspiring writers want to contact me I'm happy to enter into a dialogue with them alright Stephanie thank you so much for coming on tonight thank you